Our model of democracy, underpinned by human rights and the rule of law, is being challenged across the globe. Human rights are our ultimate tool to help societies grow in freedom. And we must have the foresight and courage to imagine what might happen if we don't act now. And instead, please, create the world as it should be. Young and old, male and female, rich and poor, from all creeds, races and tribes, they are the heroes of this story. Welcome to Intersections, where human rights and democracy meet. I'm Marty Flax, Director of the Human Rights Initiative and Kosravi Chair in Principled Internationalism at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Each episode, we'll tackle current events with activists and policymakers at the center of efforts to promote human rights and build stronger, more sustainable democracies. On this episode of Intersections, we'll talk about the global reverberations of the murder of George Floyd nearly two years ago, and in particular, how that has impacted efforts to address racially biased policing in the United States and Europe. We're going to talk with two experts who are using research and data to drive evidence-based policies and who are looking at how different jurisdictions are seeking to learn from each other as they test new models of criminal justice. We'll first speak with Dr. Tracy Kesey, co-founder and senior vice president of Justice Initiatives at the Center for Policing Equity. She served as the first ever deputy commissioner of equity and inclusion at the New York City Police Department and is a retired 25-year veteran of the Denver Police Department. In December, she was appointed by the United Nations Human Rights Council to serve as a member of a newly established body tasked with advancing racial justice and equality in law enforcement in all parts of the world. We'll then speak with Ojiako Nwabuzo. Ojiako is a senior research officer at the European Network Against Racism, where she's responsible for coordinating its research and reports on racism in Europe. In recent years, she has focused on policing and the criminal justice system, including through her PhD doctoral research focused on anti-racism advocacy and anti-discrimination policies in Europe. Dr. Casey, thank you so much for being with us here today. We're so grateful to have you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Good to be here. So you spent more than 25 years as a police officer uh, before you co-founded the Center for Policing Equity. Tell us about that experience and what led you to co-found the center and then what the center is now doing and what kind of tools it's deploying to help local governments and police departments better protect their constituents' human rights. Absolutely. And thank you for the question, too. Oh, my goodness. What led to the co-founding of the Center for Policing Equity? I would be remiss if I didn't mention the co-founder, <laughs> Philip Atiba Goff. We met at a event at Stanford University with Jennifer Eberhardt, and I was there actually seeking answers to the question as a division chief in Denver, really looking at the issue of race and policing. We had a young man that had mental health issues that had died in a shooting, and so really trying to understand that dynamic and was there anything that we should be doing differently. And this was after, of course, a very intense conversation with communities, specifically the black community, around those engagements. And of course, that led us on the quest, Phil and I, on how do we begin to answer those questions, not only for community, but for law enforcement as well. There was also a, a very deep interest in that. And that was about 13 and a half years ago, and, and that is how CPE was born. The think tank itself really does use data and science to lead that work. 
We offer a number of different products. Our main one really, and the thing that we don't charge for, is how do we take the data from police and, and do the methodology around looking at disparities and really trying to help them understand through policy work, through centering community, how do you look at those differences and those different outcomes and begin to, one, reduce the harm, but by centering the outcomes of safety the community is looking for to try things differently. So our other products really um, revolve around doing everything from hands-on TA, working with community and law enforcement to think about alternatives to public safety, all the way through very simple things of do we stop you know, doing certain things um, and, and measuring. Measuring is very important. It's one of the things that we find don't happen very often. How do you measure? How do you do evidence-based type work to make sure that you are moving the needle in a way that is providing the relief and the safety as community defines it. Fascinating. And can you share with us some of that data, some of your findings that help inform the work and help our listeners kind of understand the scope of the, of the challenge? Well, I mean, there's some things that we know, like when we talk about the behavior of officers, right? We know with, for example, implicit bias, if you slow things down, if you give officers the time to de-escalate, that you can really have different outcomes. And then we're also looking at things that we don't quite know, right? Those alternatives. One of the things I know um, is a large conversation throughout law enforcement and in community are those responses, for example, to mental health. How do we know if co-response is better than a, a no response? And these are things that we still don't quite have the answers to. We know that there's an effect, right? So we know that if you send someone other than an armed responder, that you get a different outcome. But to what extent, those are questions we're still really trying to understand and to what scale. So it's not just what do we know, what do we still have yet to learn? So there's a lot of that that is still going on. So we have some things that are working, I would say, really differently throughout the country uh, in different communities. And it really is part of our role to go and look and search and to review to see what is also working and to lift that up and to begin to scale. And as you're having this conversation domestically, there's also a global conversation happening. And as we saw, you know, after the murder of George Floyd in the summer of 2020, we saw the, the launch or the revitalization of a, of a really strong social movement in support of, of ending racism, especially in civilian security institutions, not just here, but in Europe and elsewhere. How has this issue being in the headlines or back in the headlines, I should say, influenced your work? You've been doing this long before that landmark event, but how, um, how has it changed your approach in the two years since then? Well, I wouldn't say it necessarily changed our approach, and, and I appreciate you lifting up the international part of this and the landmark piece of this, of course, the, the homicide of Mr. Floyd. And I think what it served was really as a reminder that this is global, right? They were all interconnected. And I think oftentimes we forget that. And so we saw that, you know, a couple of summers ago when we saw this global pouring into the streets, that folks are having a shared experience. But it's not just the shared experience. I think what was also interesting for me, and I have to think about this generationally as a, as a woman of color, that we also saw an outpouring of allyship that we had not seen on a level, I don't think. My mother is 81, and she will tell you from the South that there were always, though, you know, there were some that were allies. It was usually a small number, or it was very difficult for them to be public about it, you know, historically. But you saw a really overwhelming number 
of allies that you had not seen, I don't think, on this scale and, and this level. But what it really did show was that there was this interconnectedness and there was a relatedness to what people were seeing. And that would be the experience that they were having with a group of people that were supposed to be keeping them safe. And so I think that for me was something that was really important. And I remember, you know, distinctly asking the question for, you know, a couple of folks and, and colleagues that I would be doing, you know, news media with was why this is so different. You know, why now? Why all of a sudden do you have this pouring of, this, you know, folks on the street at, at a really unprecedented level? And, you know, and I think I got a, a couple of very interesting, you know, answers. You know, some folks would say, well, you know, it's COVID. We're all locked in. We have nowhere we can go. We, we're focused on TV, right? We're starved for not just entertainment, but we are captive. We couldn't go anywhere. And so we were really forced to watch this as opposed to, you know, our busy lives going on and not necessarily, you know, paying attention so we were paying attention. And then I think there, depending on who you were, there were portions of that that we watched. And I can tell you as a mother, you know, hearing Mr. Floyd's last gasp breath and calling for his mother was something I will never forget, right? As a mother and as a grandmother, it was a pain in that voice that you just will never forget. And so I think it was a, is a very strong reminder that we were all connected and we had to remember that. And I think it was a powerful reminder that, you know, we are each other's keepers and we have to remember that and we have to do things to support one another. And, you know, sometimes it looks like moving out into the street to do that. So you're now taking this work that you've been doing domestically to the global level. You've recently been appointed by the UN Human Rights Council to a commission that's looking at the issue of systemic racism and other human rights violations by law enforcement all around the world. So what are the lessons that you're bringing from your U.S. experience to that new work? So, you know, we should back up just a little bit. So it's not just the lessons. You know, there is a lot of work that's been done on the UN level in that particular space. And I always start with the annual report the high commissioner did um, in 2021 that sort of outlays all of that work that has been done. And so we, we start there. But the Human Rights Council, they appointed three of us to um, this work that focuses on policing and those of African and African descent, and first of all, there's three of us, and, I, and I'm never going to forget to say the three of us. There is the chair of our mechanism, Yvonne Makoro, and she is a former justice of the Constitutional Court of South Africa. There is also Juan Mendez, who is the former UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. He is also a professor of human rights uh, at the American University, just a genius. And so we all have these very different focuses but it is, you know, the law enforcement portion of this, which is very different from the other mechanism. And it really is us going in and asking those really specific questions. And it really is for us to not just look at law enforcement, but the criminal justice portion of this. And so in that proclamation, it is things looking at, for example, the legacy of colonialism, the transatlantic slave, you know, all of those pieces and, and how this starts. So the historical portions of that um, that are equally as important that we're going to be looking at that. The notions of, you know, how do you do accountability? All of that. I mean, we hear these things, you know, in, in the United States, but they are true globally. How do you hold folks accountable to that? Um, we, again, we talk about systemic racism for, you know, Africans and those of African descent in regards to how are they interacting with law enforcement. So you're talking about racial profiling, you know, other low level enforcement, whether or not you're talking about policy, um, laws, any of those things in regards to 
how you enforce those. You're looking at white supremacy. You're looking at systemic things. So not just law enforcement, you're looking at prosecution, you know, so all of those things, you have issues of trust, right? We hear, we hear that here um, in America as well, oversight. Uh, so there's, you know, those things. And then there's also data, which is important to the work that I do, right? How do you disaggregate that data and what does that look like? And one of the things that we, you know, we're a three-year um, mandate. We also will be doing, um, you know, visits to, to other countries, also holding, you know, special sessions to hear what's going on. And I think what's important is that we are also building upon the work that other mechanisms are doing. So it's really coordinating that work and not making sure that we are, are not repeating. So we have spent our last, um, since our appointment, really meeting with other mechanisms and, and hearing about their work and asking those really critical questions about what's being done, what's the focus and what's been happening, and really just trying to sort of lay our foundation about what our focus is going to be and, and where we're going to begin the work. And so we're, again, very pleased with, um, first, I have to say, I'm very pleased with, the, with my two new colleagues because we do bring such very different perspectives, but it is that focus on the criminal justice system um, which is going to be really critical. And it is not just about, for me, you know, exporting what's been done in America, you know, globally, but there are lots of things happening across the country, across the world that we can learn from. And I think it's going to be a combination of those things. Also looking at what's evidence-based. One of the things that we do here often, and I think it's not just in the United States, I think it's globally as well, is we call what we call best practice. And what I often have to share with people is you know communities of color and those that are most vulnerable are really tired of being practiced on and we really need to talk about you know what is evidence-based what works what do we know works and oftentimes not what works in one community will easily translate into another and so it's important that we also connect with all of the stakeholders academicians victims survivors police officers you know everyone government so all of the the conversations and the interconnectedness again of those systems are gonna be really important to, to sit down with and to understand and to really clearly have a really good understanding of what the blockages are. Absolutely, and, and you all have an incredibly broad mandate, so you it sounds like you're gonna learn from a, a lot of different people doing a lot of different types of work in this space, which is uh, gonna be amazing. Uh, three years does not seem like enough time for you all to wrap your heads around all of this. But I did want to ask, you know, to your to your point about the, the U.S. learning also from what's happening around the world and the incredible amount of work that's taking place based on the, the what you've seen so far in this role and the, the evidence-based analysis that you have pointed to. Does anything jump out at you as uh, as opportunities, as, as, as examples that are applicable here of things that we should be trying in the United States that maybe aren't getting as much attention here as they are in other places? It's still too early for me. I'm sure there is. I'm not going to say, you know, absolutely not. I haven't seen anything. I'm, and I think that is going to be the, that's the interest for me. I'm absolutely really wanting to hear and see what is working. You know, so I know it's out there. I, I don't want to, to us to think that we're so arrogant that there aren't other people doing things and, and really moving the needle on what's working. And for our mechanism, that's the purpose, you know, of the visits is we know there are things out there that are working, that are evidence-based, um, that we will be, you know, we have a report that's due in September. We're hoping to capture a lot of those things and share them 
um, because we know that there are folks out there, there's academicians, again, there's civil society that are doing and trying things that we know are moving the needle. And we're hoping to capture that as well. Well, we're really looking forward to seeing your report and your conclusions and, and hopefully that informing the debate here in the U.S. as well as around the world. Well, that's a great segue to the next question I was going to ask you, which is about sort of our, our own house being in order and what that means for our influence internationally. You know, President Biden has framed a lot of his foreign policy in the context of this global struggle for democracy and the U.S. opportunity for leadership in that struggle. And, and we're seeing that play out right now in a really stark you know, way in, in Ukraine. But over and over again, we've been reminded that what happens here in the U.S., our own struggles with democracy and human rights influences our foreign policy and our credibility on these issues and our influence on these issues. So how have you seen what's happening here in the U.S. on civil rights issues broadly and around particularly the criminal justice system impact, you know, our ability to kind of project uh, the value of democracy overseas? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that we have to remember is oftentimes they look to the West, right, for that kind of influence. And, and actually, and we have to make sure that we're always mindful about that. And especially in policing, because we see that a lot, especially with our larger organizations. So when you think about New York and LA, um, and oftentimes Chicago, you know, Seattle, they often look to the West for that type of guidance. And so when we do that, you want to be careful because the last thing you want to do is export anything that is going to create more of an issue. And I think that kind of understanding does help you sort of mitigate that legitimacy problem. And I think the other part of this too, when you're talking about legitimacy is making sure that we check our own arrogance around it, right? And acknowledging that we're not perfect. Um, and I think that does help and saying that, look, we might not have it right, but here's what we do and here's what's at the value in the forefront of what we're thinking about when we're doing it. And I think what you just mentioned is it's 100%, making sure that we're self-checking, you know, every time we talk about this and every time we own up to it and when we talk about it. I mean, you, you'll hear folks, you know, say, you know, well, you look to the West. One of the conversations I just left prior to, to joining you was the conversation around, you know, the George Floyd Act hadn't passed. And I said, you know, and, and owning that, it's like, well, we own that, but we also know that policing is local, right? And we also have to be able to say, you know, there's only certain amount of things we can control, but what we can do is lead by example and say, hey, um, we recognize the limitations of what we can do, but what we can do is whatever we say and whatever action we take, we do it right, we do it in the name of, and we do it correctly. It represents democracy, but we also, we also, acknowledge some of the limitations. And we have to make sure that we do that. Because if you ask certain communities in the United States, they will tell you that there are things that they do not believe was working fairly. And I think we have to, we have to own that. And, and when you own it, I think that we do have more legitimacy in the eyes of the world when we can accept our own shortcomings. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Tracy Kesey, thank you so much for being with us today. Such important words, such an important perspective. Wishing you best of luck in this new mission that you're on and your ongoing work. So important. And thank you very much for being here. Well, that was a great conversation with Dr. Tracy Kesey. We'll now turn to our conversation with Ojiako Nwabuzo, who's going to speak about her work on this issue across Europe. Ojiako, we're so happy to have you with us today. So to start with, tell us about the European Network Against Racism and in particular the work that you're doing on promoting respect for human rights by security services. Thank you very much for inviting me here to speak about our work. Yeah, ENAR, the European Network Against Racism, is an, a network of 
over 150 anti-racism organisations across the EU, many of them working to address racial injustices, looking at how to improve policing and law enforcement. The ENAR Secretariat, where I'm based, based in Brussels, we've been working on this issue for some time. And we essentially are an advocacy organisation documenting incidents of police mistreatment and much of our work has been looking at racial profiling and other forms of problems with the police, discrimination and human rights violations, for example. So from around 2009 to 2019, this was the primary focus of our work. And since then, we've been working more and more looking at the intersections of policing in other areas. One major area is looking at artificial intelligence, the use of artificial intelligence by law enforcement. And then also much more recently, we've been looking at police brutality and we have focused on that in the last couple of years, which is very interesting because we had an idea to, to focus on police brutality probably in 2019. And then we had 2020 with the global uprising of Black Lives Matter. So it was a very interesting time for us to do this work. So I was going to ask you about that. A lot of Americans were really inspired and maybe surprised in the summer of 2020 to see the, the huge marches across Europe and around the world that followed the killing of George Floyd here in the United States. And, and the fact that those marches were not just in solidarity with those protesting here, although they were about that, they were also about looking internally at what's happening, for example, across Europe. So how did the, the killing of George Floyd and the movement that, that came from that impact the work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, at the time, it was pretty radical. Obviously, we in Europe were witnessing what was taking place in the US. But I think, as you've quite rightly already um, outlined, it was a moment for European citizens to say, this is also a problem here. And it was very interesting at first, a lot of the kind of um, policymakers, state representatives were trying to say, no, this doesn't happen necessarily in Europe. But actually, it was people from the ground, it was civil society organisations like ourselves saying, no, no, hang on, we've been documenting this for years. And it was something that we tried to immediately respond to by organising a whole series of panel discussions on Black Lives Matter and to ask our network what their thoughts were, what their experiences were, and have that open discussion. And I think that eventually, or I, I suppose relatively in a short period of time, the European Union really tried to respond to these discussions and to, these, to the uprising because they couldn't really ignore it any further. And since then, and, and I think in particular, in relation to our work, we've seen some policy developments from the EU. We had an, an, a European Parliament resolution. We had an EU anti-racism action plan, which kind of has this potential extension on an EU directive, which may potentially look at law enforcement. So there were quite significant and very fast changes to looking at race race equality, anti-racism, and they took on board actually a lot of what we had been asking for and calling for for, for very many years. 
But we are also thinking of more of the longer term implications, because, of course, this EU action plan does address uh, racism and law enforcement. But we are thinking about how society is structured and how the police needs to be reconsidered as a concept. And I think this is where our work continues to, to this day, really. And how do you do that across the European Union? I think it's really interesting that the EU is thinking about taking up directives on this topic and trying to think about EU-wide policies, given how differently European countries approach policing and the different policies, the different practices, and the, the different experiences that you have across the EU in terms of this issue. How does your network kind of share information and best practices across individual countries? And then how do you use that to build what could be European-wide policies? Yeah, there's a variety of ways in which we do that. As we have said, we're working in Europe across nation states. Our members will bring their own perspectives. And we, first of all, we're creating many spaces for that exchange of practice and that exchange of experience to take place and therefore then maybe better identify some of the solutions. This is still a real work in progress. And I think um, one of the key things that we have done as an organisation, we're now part of a UN anti-racism coalition with over 50 collectives and NGOs and social movements worldwide. And this was a coalition that grew largely as a result to the Human Rights Council Resolution 43-1. And I think I think it was last year that we had another resolution, the adoption of resolution 47-21, which has basically resulted in a mechanism that is there to advance racial justice and equality in law enforcement. And being in that coalition has really helped that exchange of experiences and practices. And I think one of the key important principles of this coalition is, is that it centres directly impacted communities and individuals. And there are many organisations really doing this work. I think we have to also mention that the institutions, and by that I mean EU institutions, but also police institutions, are sharing themselves um, what they see as best practice and they have been doing that. The EU does that across member states, specifically around hate crime and we've been involved in that process. So we come and we, we talk about what potentially could be best practices. But I think with this issue around police violence and law enforcement, I think what we have been doing is introducing into the conversation different concepts um, like transformative justice, abolition, decriminalisation, and even notions of how civil societies can, can operate with a, an approach of self-care. And I think this is something that Dr Tracy Kesey has mentioned herself in terms of how civil societies and civil society organisations can really address the issue of policing and law enforcement. And many of these concepts that we're introducing into the discussion may sound relatively new to some institutions, to some organisations. But in fact, these concepts have been developed over decades by black feminists like Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore and what we're doing now is trying to articulate things that go beyond policing, things that go beyond criminalisation. And we do need 
more examples and to discuss models of community accountability, alternatives to policing, which we know come in all shapes and sizes. And I think this is one of the things is it's it's not just about us sharing good practice, because what works well in one place doesn't always work the same way in another. And I think it's really important to to center this back to the communities in some way and give them the opportunity to decide and say what is necessary. You mentioned earlier that there was some reluctance on the part of, of governments or the EU to kind of acknowledge the scale of this problem in Europe after seeing what's happening in the United States. And, uh, and you mentioned some of the work that you do around documentation. So I was curious about the role of, of data collection and analysis in your work and talk about how that kind of information sharing and, and data is important uh, and what that data tells you about the kinds of solutions that you're proposing, what's needed and what could potentially work. Yeah, we have been calling for what we say or what we phrase as equality data collection, which essentially aims to improve racialized groups' lives through policymaking. You know, so having the correct data and making or creating evidence-based policies. And this is sorely lacking across most of Europe. There are some countries, UK is, is always used as an example, where there is better equality data collection. But it's critical because if we are talking about evidence-based policymaking, then we really do need this data. And it's not, it's not there in the quantity that we need or to the detail that we need in most EU member states. And so as I was saying earlier on, or I've said before is that we try and do this documentation and we were thinking of documenting incidents of racist policing and brutality in around 2019. And many of our network organisations said that this information is, is almost impossible to find. And, and I think that it was this significant event of the murder of George Floyd that encouraged people to to share more information, to make it more visible. And then you saw people marching in the streets to show that, that this issue, this specific issue is so incredibly important. So then you, you see how a significant issue or event like the death of George Floyd can help to unearth the extent of the problem. More recently, I think, in terms of data collection, and I go back to the UK because it is an example often used, we had a, a, an incident of a child, Child Q, who was um, strip searched in a London school by the Metropolitan Police. And this was a young black girl. And I think this was, again, another significant incident which called to attention that this happens to children. So we see that there is a problem with policing in schools and a problem with policing racialized young people and children. And since then, there is now more data that's come from the Metropolitan Police to show that actually most children who are stripped, stripped searched, come from racialized groups. And lastly, really, it's just about the evidence that you can collect on the impact on some changes in practice. And this is one of the things that I have looked more so to the US than 
probably anywhere else because there have been significant reforms um, in policing over the years in the US in terms of racist policing, introductions of body cams, etc. And then the, the, the data and the research shows that these reforms may not be um, making as much of an impact as is required to address the issue. So then this is also really important information that we need to have. So I want to take a, a big step back, the big picture, and, and return to a point you made early on about how interconnected issues of discriminatory policing and violence are with inequality in society and sort of building an inclusive democracy. So we're watching right now in Europe a battle for democracy literally in Ukraine as they fight back against this military aggression by Russia. But we've been watching for a long time a more subtle sort of internal battle within European countries against those who, who seek to undermine democracy. And I'm interested in your views on, on how issues of discrimination and particularly of these issues around the behavior of security services impact the sustainability and the stability of democracy in Europe. Yeah, that's a really big question, and I think that it's a, a very pertinent one. But I think, firstly, I have to speak about the crisis in Ukraine, which is at the EU borders, and how it's impacting on black and brown bodies. We must um, acknowledge this, and we've seen so many reports of racial profiling at the border, and more deeply, this exposes that question or, or starts to help us understand how Europe has potentially a problem with, with its own democracy. Because I think that this issue of racial profiling at the, at the border exposes Europe, Europe's problem with race, migration and law enforcement. And we can see with the reception of racialized migrants uh, following this crisis, that there's kind of like a double standard. So there is a, a temporary protective directive, which in a way doesn't address fully the hierarchy of rights that we see when it comes to different groups. So with migrants who are from racialized communities, it doesn't protect them in the same way that it might protect other groups. And what impact do you think that this issue has on the, the ability of, of European countries or the United States to message about human rights and democracy overseas? Both the U.S. and Europe spend millions of dollars on external assistance to security services around the world, including training on things like human rights practices but also, you know, trying to demonstrate global leadership on human rights and democracy issues and, and build, you know, what President Biden has described as a global coalition on democracy and to push back against authoritarianism. How do you see these issues around discrimination and behavior by security services impacting our ability to, to message and to lead on that front? Well, I think we have to ask ourselves, what is law enforcement for? What are we trying to do here with, um, with, the, with the use of law enforcement? And one, if the answer is for communities to feel safe, for example, or to have these democratic societies where we can live in, in safety and, and can participate in society, in some ways, this is the idea of what policing is there to help enforce and protect. But in other ways, I would say that that's not what they do. 
essentially we need to look at how these institutions are, are really oppressing certain groups. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for this really insightful conversation. I learned a lot from it and I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for being with us. More information on these issues can be found on this episode's webpage at www.csis.org slash podcasts slash intersections. Follow the Human Rights Initiative on Twitter at CSIS Human Rights. If you like what you just heard, click subscribe. See you soon.